Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into the topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy and successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president and CEO of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with high net worth families across the country for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. Welcome to the April Investment Edition of the Wealthy Behavior Podcast, where I talk to Heritage Financial's Chief Investment Officer, Bob Weiss, about what's going on in the markets, what's been going on in the markets, what he's seeing in portfolios, and the investment universe today. Bob, welcome to Wealthy Behavior. Hi, Sammy. I should say welcome back. Uh, you're, you're probably the, the podcast's biggest attraction, partly because the market has been so interesting since we started uh, recording. You and I talked in, in preparation for this conversation. There's been a lot going on. We haven't commented on Silicon Valley Bank yet, the market reaction, Credit Suisse, concerns or questions that people have had about cash, money market yields, difference between a money market and, and money in the bank. Um, where inflation is, where inflation's going. There, there's a lot there outside of the normal kind of investment portfolio updates that we we usually get into. Where would you like to begin? Yeah, maybe starting with the Silicon Valley Bank failure and Credit Suisse. And um, I feel like that happened not too long after our last podcast. So that, that, that's all new and we've received, I know, a number of my questions tying it to their assets, you know, naturally, how does that affect me? So uh, maybe start there. Yeah, great. So take us away. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse, I think people are lumping them together, but they are uh, different, in my opinion. And I believe you, you feel the same thing. Credit Suisse has had bank problems for a long time. Silicon Valley Bank kind of cropped up out of nowhere. Um, so one was more of a market surprise than the other. So, so maybe start with Silicon Valley Bank and what happened and what it means. Yeah, so with Silicon Valley Bank, um, in a nutshell, it's a your, your classic run on the bank. So um, they had a lot of deposits um, taking in ten to twenty-five billion dollars a quarter in um, mid from from basically the second half of twenty twenty all the way through the end of twenty twenty one. So call it like six to eight quarters of taking in twenty plus billion. Um, each quarter. And during that period, interest rates were very low. 10-year treasury was yielding one and a half, two percent Mortgage rates were three to four percent. So as a, a bank, and I think this is important for um, our listeners who, who have been following this, but are trying to wonder how it ties to their assets as a bank, the, the business model is you take deposits and here's Silicon Valley Bank's getting you know, 20 billion a quarter. And then they don't just sit on it, they either invest it, um, like buy treasuries, or um, lend it out, like issuing mortgages, or they could buy mortgages. So they, they did these things, and at the time, rates were very low. And then um, the Fed you know, went on, it it's, did its thing by raising rates over the course of 2022, and interest rates went up, the price of bonds went down, and they were sitting on big losses. And it, it was a little... Um, uneven compared to their competitors because all the money, most of the money came in over that short period when we were in the, the COVID recovery and interest rates were at rock bottom levels. Um, and then you just had, you know, venture capitalists saying, take your money out of Silicon Valley Bank. And, and people just took out their phones and started, you know, wiring out their money. And um, 
the, the money left quicker than they could create liquidity. And or even if they could create liquidity, um, they would have been selling these bonds at losses. So it's a bit of a unique uh, scenario. Um, raises a lot of questions that, like, that are being asked around regulation, like why weren't the regulators involved? Um, also on risk management, where were the risk managers in the bank? Um, so it, it does appear to be a fairly isolated incident and a, a poorly run bank with some bad decisions they made over that, that um, 2020 to 2022 period. And I know you touched on it, but maybe let me bring it up a little bit. It feels like you you think that the timing of their deposits and the that strength of deposit stretch that they had impacted this. Was that not bad luck that was mixed into the mismanagement or did I miss something? No, definitely uh, fair to say there's an element of bad luck. They got an influx of cash at the worst possible time. And, you know, you can't blame them for doing something with it. They um, put it to work in market yields and just market yields were very low when their cash came in, as opposed to, you know, every other bank who's getting cash in earlier on in, in the decade when yields were at least 3%. Here, they put most of it to work at ones and twos with the 10-year treasury. And the market reaction was not obviously favorable for the market that people watch the most, which is stocks. There was a lot of volatility, but maybe something that is less watched by the everyday investor is how bond yields and, and treasury bonds reacted to this. Yeah, th that was fascinating. Um, the, the the bond market um, just tanked as far as um, yields going down, prices going up. And you see that um, in, in the treasury bond market, looking across the yield curve, um, whether short-term bonds or intermediate or long-term bonds, treasury yields declined. And um, what's related to that is that's to some extent looking at future uh, Fed fund policy. So what the Federal Reserve will do, which we've been talking about a lot on this podcast. And there's um, an instrument traded called the Fed Funds Futures, where you can trade it based on where you think the Fed funds rate will be in the future. And that, um, if you believe like the wisdom of crowds, or you just want to like check the pulse of the market, like what is the market pricing in for future Fed funds rates to give you a sense before the Silicon Valley Bank failure. So in early March, so on like March 6th, I have a slide. Uh, the Fed funds rate was expected to be around five to five and a half percent at year end, which um, implied at that point in time, uh, Fed funds rate was at 475. So that was saying another like 75 basis points in increases over the course of the year. And after the Silicon Valley Bank failure, that dropped um, by about 1% to the point where by year end it is pricing in around a four and a quarter Fed funds rate, which is actually saying the Fed's going to cut rates by 50 basis points from there. And it's a big difference, not, not just as a percentage, but directionally. The market went from, okay, inflation's still a problem. There's going to be some more Fed rate hikes to the market saying, oh, uh, we're probably going to head into a recession and the Fed's going to need to cut rates to save the day. The, those are completely different directions. And, and the, the market um, really since then has um, said that you know the, the Fed is basically done. There might be one more hike, but it, assets are, are being priced as if the Fed's done. When you look at it, what is um, good for the, the fight against inflation from this is a, a banking crisis 
is um, deflationary because banks are then less likely to lend. It's not just Silicon Valley Bank, but it's all the banks. Everyone's looking at their balance sheet and whether from the bankers to the risk officers, I bet they're a little busier now than they were before this. Uh, regulators, investors want to know, hey, how's your balance sheet looking? So they're um, probably a little um, you know, more careful with lending. And you know, lending can be, some people would say, the blood of the economy. And when lending slows down, the economy can slow down. So all of this, um, I think there's definitely a silver lining in it. Um, at least the market's telling us that um, the, this is definitely going to help slow inflation, which has been our key concern for a while. Do you agree with the market? I agree with the market on that front. Yeah, I, I think, um, and it, it doesn't, I talked about um, banking, but I think it even goes beyond the banks. Like you see an event like this and everyone might think twice before they overextend themselves, before businesses set off on expansion plans before employees maybe quit their job to, you know, I don't know, go on a sabbatical or do something else. Um, and we're, we're seeing it in the data. If rate hikes are over or have come to an end or about to come to an end and rate cuts may be closer than the market was originally anticipating, what does that mean, if anything, for a portfolio's asset allocation and some of the investment decisions people should be making? Yeah, that, I mean, that that's a good question. It's the big question. Um, we might be at peak bond yields. So Fed raises rates. And for the last, uh, you know, it seems like 12 to 16 months, the Fed keeps raising rates and um, they're doing more than people expect and rates keep going up and up and up. And um, we may have very likely seen peak rates. And so it's now's the time to lock in for longer term. While it can be tempted with an inverted yield curve where you have higher yields in short term and then yields actually decline as you go longer term, it can be tempting to uh, buy the, the short term bonds that have higher yields. Um, in a year, two, three years, those yields will be long gone. So it's um, take advantage of the, the attractive bond market where um, really any place on the yield curve, you're, you're doing a lot better than you've, you, you were at uh, any point in the last decade. So um, bonds, bonds are back. We've been saying that. And yep. um, I think that that's definitely one takeaway. How does that play out, Bob, though? If I, I'm looking at these two-year yields and I think they're phenomenal and they are extremely attractive, and then I'm listening to you and you're saying, yeah, but they're going to be gone in a couple of years, go out further on the yield curve and lock that in. Why can't that individual basically buy those two-year bonds, have them mature in a couple of years, and then reposition their portfolio in the long run? What's the opportunity that they're going to miss then? Yeah, so it's in two years where our rate's going to be. And the like I was talking about the Fed funds futures, two years, the, the Fed funds rate, it'll be a lot lower. So obviously, we don't know exactly where it'll be, but you'll, you'll get your four plus percent now. And then in two years, that matures. And you'll be looking at a new set of rates that'll probably be a lot lower than they are now. So it's the math of say, if you can get 4% for the next two years, and then you have to reset at 2% for another two year, you do four for two years, then two for two years, or you could do three and a half for four years right now. And you're better off getting three and a half for four years than the four and two. So back of the napkin math, but something Un like that. Yep. Understood. Very, very clear. Uh, and then We've, we've seen other banks come in, and, and you touched on this with a, just a banking crisis in general can slow down the economy. And we've seen the spillover effect 
to other banks. Fortunately, nothing near what we saw in Silicon Valley Bank. Credit Suisse, we talked about at the outset, different, a different story. Do you think this connects to this at all? Does this matter to the markets? Not really. Credit Suisse, if you look at a chart of the, the stock of Credit Suisse, that, that's just been dying for 15 years. Um, there is a long list of um, things that have gone wrong with Credit Suisse. A lot of mismanagement um, from the bank and banking executives, um, a lot of things that they've been involved in that haven't been good. Um, also, though, in their defense, it's been a tough environment to run a bank in Europe. Europe had negative interest rates for a number of years. Um, and trying to run a bank with negative interest rates is, is it's got to be hard <laughs> when your business is, you know, um, taking in deposits and you're not paying interest and then um, making loans and you can't really charge much interest with negative interest rates. So it was bad macro environment and a lot of mismanagement, you know, some issues with Credit Suisse, but nothing bigger than that, that I would extend to the, the broader financial sector. So outside of the portfolio impact and what's going to happen with the economy, people have been asking a lot, what do I do with cash in the bank? What do I, how do I think about these 250,000 FDIC deposit limits, money market yields versus cash versus my investment assets that are at a custodian. Can you just walk us through a primer of the differences between all three and, and where you would or wouldn't be concerned? Yeah, so I think to start, it's understanding the differences between a brokerage firm or a custodian and a bank, and they are different. Although one business can do both activities, like Charles Schwab, for example, has a banking business, and they also have a custody business. When you go to a bank, you give them your cash, and that's a deposit and they pay you interest on the cash, and then they do things with the cash. They invest their cash on their balance sheet however they want. They Maybe not exactly however they want, but they can buy treasuries. So they invest your cash, they lend out your cash, and you can have a, a run on the bank scenario like Silicon Valley Bank if everyone tries to take out their money at once. That's banking. Custody is different. When you have your assets at a custodian and it's invested in securities, whether it's a mutual fund or Apple common stock or US treasury bonds, the, the custodian's doing nothing other than holding that asset. They can't dip into it. They can't you know, use that money for other purposes. So they're just basically a record keeper. So the, they're print and printing statements, not to um, belittle their business. I mean, they, they are issuing you know, your 1099s and your statements, uh, but they're, they're keeping records and just seeing that the money gets transacted back and forth. They're not taking your investments and then somehow taking additional levels of risk with them. So it's just first good to know what, what you own. And you know, tying back to the question, um, what you don't want to be doing is making large deposits, especially in excess of the FDIC limit to banks and just letting them go take risk with it while you're not getting paid much. Um, what you should be doing is if you have just deposits in the bank, keep it below FDIC limits, which is 250,000, or invested in securities um, where you're taking the risk of the underlying security. So if you wanna be conservative, you can buy treasury bills or money market funds. And there you're taking the risk of those securities, which is a very low level of risk. So I think that's a key explanation point for folks, but you, you can think of money markets as cash, but in actuality, a money market is a security. It's an investment. 
Can you quantify the risk compared to cash? Probably not precisely, but how would you explain the risk to somebody of a money market compared to cash in the bank compared to treasury bills? Money markets are are not FDIC insured. So cash within the FDIC insurance limits is backed by the government. So that's about as close to zero risk as you can get. Um, money markets are very low risk. And for people who um, are concerned about risk within money markets, there are different types of money markets. So Schwab, for example, has the Schwab value advantage money market. And those um, the yields on those right now are 4.7 and 4.85%. So attractive yields. Uh, but then they also have U.S. Treasury money markets. So like the Schwab U.S. Treasury money market yields around 415 to 430 so they'll take a little more risk in the value advantage fund where they're buying very short-term investment grade bonds like, like commercial paper that you know matures in 30 to 45 days. Um, in the treasury fund, they're doing 30 to 45 day T-bills. So as far as risk, how much risk is there in owning a 30 to 45 day um, T-bill? It, it, it's, I mean, it is known as the risk-free asset. So um, very low level of risk in these um, in throughout history, like through the financial crisis, um, I know there, there was one money market that the languages broke the buck and that made headlines, but um, major banking money markets, um, we have not seen issues with them. Like th- these are low risk vehicles. Got it. No, that's great. And so now we'll pivot to our favorite topic, which is inflation in fa- favor, because that's what the world has made it for us. You shared at a team meeting last week that the inflation numbers have likely peaked and there's an argument to be made that they'll drop pretty rapidly from here because of some favorable year-over-year comparisons. I know that gets a little bit complicated uh, with the OPEC move, which I'm sure you'll touch on, but can you walk us through that? Yeah, it's um, as far as like forecasting future inflation levels, um, inflation is typically reported in um, a number of forms, but over time periods, they look month to month and year over year. And it, typically, the, the, the headline number is the, the trailing 12-month change in inflation. And it's not rocket science, but to, to know that you know it, it's two numbers. You, you have the, the month, the, the current reading, and then the reading 12 months ago, and you divide the two. And if you look at um, oil, for example, which is a, a key component in the inflation calculation, both directly um, as energy prices and indirectly when you think about things like food, for example, uh, the price of energy um, flows through into the, the price of food. Russia invaded Ukraine um, late February of 2022 and oil spiked. So in March of 2022, oil was around uh, $110. And it, it stayed north of 100 um, through uh, about the summer, through July, and it was up to 120. So when we are looking at year-over-year numbers for the next quarter, uh, for the price of oil, which is 80 right now, we're going to be doing 80 divided by, um, if it stays at 80, with an asterisk there, but we're going to be doing 80 divided by either between 100 and 120. So you're looking at um, you know, pretty significant decline in price. And like I said, that's a key component of inflation, um, both directly and indirectly. So knowing that that's baked into the data, you know, we're expecting to see inflation continue to slow. So before you move on to the other data point, 
you used 80. That was after OPEC's announcement. When you first explained this to me, you were using a, a lower number. Yeah, it, it was, I think, 67 when I put the chart together that, that you first <laughs> saw. So yeah, oil is a volatile asset. There's a reason why they, they also report um, X food and energy because energy is volatile and went from 67 to 80 pretty quickly. But there's still... The, the thing with inflation is it, it's 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 constant growth. So to, to have like an, an inflationary print in June, we would need oil to be above 120. And th that's still got a ways to go. That's a 50% increase from where we are now. Got it. And then the second thing is shelter, right? Yeah, housing. Um, we're, we're, there's a lot of housing data um, coming out. Housing's getting hit harder on the West Coast than the East Coast with, um, I think- I saw that, the, yeah. Yeah, what's going on in tech. Um, a lot of layoffs in tech, I think that's probably leading to why it's hitting, say, California harder than the East Coast. But nonetheless, aggregate housing data, um, the the Fed has, I think I'd say this partly the Fed from raising rates, has impacted housing. And um, we're now seeing year-over-year uh, -year price declines um, after rates, after housing prices, excuse me, went up a lot in 2021. And then the rate of change just gradually declined throughout 2022. Um, while the owner's equivalent rent that, that feeds through the CPI has been high, um, I think it, that's just got some catching up to do because housing has not been on fire at all for uh, the last six months. So um, I think there's some nice um, stability baked into the data set that as the numbers roll off, we'll see that number come down. Great. No, thanks, Bob. That was an excellent overview of some things that are in the news that are impacting clients' financial plans and their portfolios. A lot of times we start these podcasts with just a check-in on how the markets have been doing. And if you look at it year to date, you know, stocks are up globally or in the US, uh, seven plus percent. Bonds are up a few percent. And if you go back a little bit further to the middle of October of last year when the market bottomed, you know, globally stocks are up 17% or so. US stocks are up close to 14. Bonds are up over 6%. So it's a little hard to see in the year-to-year -year numbers, but you're starting to see year-to-date performance that's pretty attractive. And if you take it back to the market bottom, you're you're really starting to see, I think, some sharp moves. Does that surprise you, given the Fed has been raising rates, the inflation concerns, the recession that may be around the corner, and a banking crisis that we're in the midst of? Yeah, it's it's a good observation and question. I think maybe I'll answer it a little differently, less from what I think about it and more what the market's telling us. And I think the market is telling us that it is um, it fears inflation more than it fears a recession. And that the, the, the I think it was our January podcast. It, it, it did say that the, the baton's been handed off from inflation to recession, and we're on more recession watch. And the market would rather worry about a potential little dip in a recession that could happen in the second half of 2023 or early 2024, and have inflation behind us. That is a better world than uh, 1970s like inflation being sticky and persistent and a Fed battle that you know they can't get rid of it. And it's it's looking like the inflation's going behind us, recession may be coming, but on the whole, that's, I think the market's telling us that that's a win. 
And I can see that because, you know, these we'll, we'll get through this. Un unemployment will probably tick up, but we've, you know, seen this story before and, and um, think things will be okay. And not being in a world with persistently high inflation um, will definitely be a good thing. So do you think we retest the October lows? There's a chance. Um, I, I know there's always a chance and maybe even an elevated chance, like a 30, I think I told you 33 to 50% chance. Like it, it's definitely in the cards um, where, again, we're seeing more and more recession signals. Uh, so certainly wouldn't rule it out, but, um, you know, the market has been resilient. Has been resilient and they're putting a little bit of a gap between them and the October numbers. So I'm always on the optimistic side. I will remain so. Um, the good news is people's portfolio outcomes don't depend on my optimism being right. Uh, it's just a, a feeling I like to have when it comes to the markets. And historically, markets have climbed a wall of worry out of previous bear markets. You know, the last bear market that we had of any length was in 2008, early 2009. The market bottomed in March. I mean, this is like days after the government nationalized city and a bunch of other financial institutions and, you know, people were at the depth of, of their fear. And that was the market bottom. And it was well before economic conditions started to turn around. And people really didn't believe the turnaround until, you know, much, much later. But by then you, you had missed a good amount of the rebound. So timing wise, this should work in your favor as a patient investor and you, you don't have to necessarily sweat the difference between starting point and ending point of a recession and a and a bear market. And it's not abnormal to see concerns early on in a recovery that ultimately don't change the direction of the recovery. Yeah. Yeah. That, that that's all well said. And I'd um you know maybe position it as you know predictions are are, are tough, especially <laughs> about the short term and um, that that's not the the game we're in. If you have you know a, even a three to five year time horizon at valuations at these levels, especially overseas, um, I think you'll do very well invested in equities. And you know there will be bumps, and whether the bumps are in the next six months or between years two and three or along the way, um, that that's, goes hand in hand with investing in equities. But I, I think um, returns will be strong if you have a time horizon long enough. One thing that jumps out at me as I look at these numbers since October, Bob, is developed international stocks are up over 26%. And we're recording early in, in April, April 5th. So this obviously could change in the next couple of days. What is the makeup of the developed international markets for our, our listeners? And then what do you see that's driving just that outperformance compared to the rest of the world? Yeah, so developed international, um, you think uh, Western Europe um, and Japan, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, I think that's uh, the majority of developed international. And as far as what's driving it, a couple things, uh, the dollar weakened, um, I think starting in Q4, the dollar was strong in the first part of last year and um, it has weakened. So um, when the dollar is weak relative to foreign currencies, foreign investments tend to do better. So you've had um, some currency. And then I think on the valuation front, those markets were cheaper. So that um, can always be a nice tailwind when you have a, a better starting point. Got it. Thank you for joining us today, Bob. I really appreciate the conversation and I'm sure our listeners do. 
little bit of an interesting time in the markets with what's going on in the banking system and that tutorial on the difference between cash money market and custodial accounts plus how to think of you know inflation versus a recession the market reacting the way that it does all extremely helpful so thank you for joining thanks Sammy how to build your next million heritage financials newly released ebook teaches investors about the tools and strategies that can help them save keep grow and protect their assets this free ebook can be accessed in this episode's show notes and on our website at heritagefinancial.net. Today is a great day to learn how to build your next million. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. We appreciate your feedback and questions. Please email us at wealthybehavior@heritagefinancial.net. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakamis. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast or that of the speaker are subject to change and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.